President Matthew Harrison of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod usually comes to our SCLC district conventions. And when he gets up to preach, kind of like I am right now, he almost always starts by saying how happy he is to be here at our convention because we are his favorite district. Of course, he has 35 others, and so not to offend them, he usually then says, and of course, I have to say that to every district. And then he pauses again and says, but really, you are my favorite. And in much the same way, I feel kind of bad because last week I said the parable of the dishonest steward is one of my favorite parables. And so is this one. Of course, they're all really, really good, but there is something profound about this particular parable, although it might not be what you think. Because if we go and read the parable of Lazarus and the rich dude, which is how I usually like to call it, it could get all sorts of different things out of it. We could, for example, think that this is an account about the hurtfulness of poverty. Here is Lazarus clearly not able to work, and so perhaps his friends, his neighbors, maybe even his parents have brought him every morning and laid him outside this rich man's house. This is not like houses in the big suburbs with one-acre lots, like in the United States, or even way out in the eastern townships where you might not even be able to see your neighbor. This is like a park extension house. And if Lazarus is laying outside your house on Dutremont, you know that he's there and you can't miss him. And the hope, of course, was that this rich man who has means would look after him. But they don't. So we could walk away and say Jesus is telling us, reminding us, begging us to consider what poverty does to people. What it means to have to beg. As we heard last week from the dishonest steward, I'm too ashamed to beg. There must be something else I can do. Or perhaps this is a parable about the terror of the afterlife. And certainly there's a lot to be afraid of in this parable. I, for my part, would rather not end up like the rich dude. I would very much like to be Lazarus. Be in the bosom of Abraham as we just sung that beautiful hymn, Lord, Thee I Love with All My Heart. I am in anguish in these flames. Did any of you have a picture in your mind of hell being a place of torment and burning and fire and flames and the devil with his pitchfork? If you have a picture of hell being a place where you are consumed by fire, you are not getting it from the apostles. You're not even entirely getting it from the Old Testament. You are getting it from parables like this. It's Jesus who is constantly describing those who will be punished in the afterlife as being in a place of burning and fire and flame. It's so bad that the rich dude wants his brothers to be warned. I don't want them to end up here. Do something. Warn them somehow so that they can escape my fate. And maybe that's what you have often taken away from this parable. A warning. Be like unto Lazarus, not like the rich man. It could also be seen as a parable about the arrogance of wealth. Not just the possession of it, but what it does to people. I tried to convey that a little bit in my reading, because we miss some of what's happening 
when we just glance over the dialogue. We have some actors here with us today. They know the importance of not just reading your lines. Oh, Romeo, Romeo, where art thou, Romeo? Not a very interesting play. We've got this guy who's not looked after Lazarus during his earthly life, and now he finds himself in Gehenna, in the place of burning, and he immediately starts ordering everybody around. He thinks he's still the big shot. Hey, Abraham, tell Lazarus that he needs to come and dip his finger in water and come down here into the flames and alleviate my suffering. And Abraham, who keeps trying to lead him along and get him to sort of show some kind of empathy, finally hears this rich man say, no, Father Abraham. What kind of arrogance do you have to have to be in hell ordering the patriarch of your faith around? No, Father Abraham, but you need to go and you need to do this and you need to do that. And boy, it's really hot down here. Or this could be a parable about the incredible difficulty of evangelism, Nigel. If only we had a sign. If only there was a miracle. If only I could walk into Montreal General Hospital and simply lay hands on people and they'd be immediately cured. Ascension would be full of people that just want to get over whatever disease it is that they have. I don't think, in fact, I know for certain that even then, they wouldn't care much. Abraham says, look, your brothers have the Old Testament. They have Moses. They have the prophets. They have the warning of Amos that you just heard this morning. Look around you. Think of what's happening in the world. Don't just be consumed with your wealth, with your positions of power, with the place of your kingdom. Abraham says Moses and the prophets should be enough to bring you to repent and see God as your savior. So that could be what this parable is about. For those of you who are members of Ascension know that I'm probably going to throw a curveball at you, and so here it is. I don't think really the main point of this parable is about any of those things. And I know that because of one number in this parable that should grab your attention. Because you see, we live in a world awash with numbers, phone numbers and zip codes and postal codes and address numbers and your SIN number and your IRS number and your CRA business code. And I could go down the list. We become numb to numbers. But in scripture, numbers carry freight. They carry meaning. They're meant to grab you. Say, oh, something important is happening here. And the one number that's in this parable is the number five. This rich dude has five brothers. Now, why five brothers? Jesus could have said he has brothers, or that he has many brothers, or that he has a few brothers, or that he has two brothers, or eight brothers. Why five? Well, those of you who have over the many years, studied Revelation with me, or looked at numbers, will remember that each of them has some importance. Ten refers to the commandments, the law of God at work in the world. Three is the number four God, even in Jewish thought, apart from the doctrine of the Trinity. 
four is the four cardinal points of the earth, north, south, east, west. And if you take the four cardinal points of the earth and the number for God and add them together, you get the number seven, which is the number of divine perfection, the number of righteousness, the number of everything being the way it's supposed to be. Now let's do some very simple arithmetic. Sophia, even you can do this. Three plus four gives you seven. Five is the number of brothers this rich dude has. Since he is dead, we brought him back to life. How many brothers would there be? Ooh, six is not a good number. Revelation calls the name of the beast six, six, six. Less than seven all the way across the board. What would make the gathering around the table for the rich man and his brothers perfect in God's eyes? If there were one more. And the one more was supplied. That one more was there at their doorstep every single day. And that one man is the only one in the parable who has a name other than Abraham. It's Lazarus. At any point in time, they could have brought Lazarus in and gathered him into being part of their family dinner. And there would have been righteousness. Seven, the number of perfection. This is what this parable is about. Lazarus is looked after by God and brought into the bosom of Abraham. So it's not just Abraham that's there. It's all of the saints who have gone before. Lazarus now, for the first time ever, is welcome to the table. He is invited in to eat, and he has a family. And it's not that God didn't try. When we read about the dogs coming and looking after Lazarus, we go, ooh, gross, dogs licking my sores. The point is the dogs even knew that Lazarus needed someone, that he shouldn't be left alone. And in fact, there is an argument that can be made that dog saliva is actually good and curative. God sends Creatures to look after Lazarus when his own people would not. Do you remember last week? Make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous mammon. And now here we are. And the blame that God lays at the feet of the rich man is that he had all the unrighteous mammon he could use. And he could have filled the table. But he didn't. Now he's dead. And there is a chasm, and it's in between Abraham, Lazarus, Sarah, Rebecca, Isaac, Noah, and his family, all the great saints of the Old Testament, all gathered together to celebrate the Lord who has delivered them, the God who has saved them from their sin, the God who has only ever wanted to show them mercy and call them together. And on the other side of that chasm, is the rich man who doesn't even have a name. A one. What this parable is about. Percent of the gospels are about money. Did you know that? 55%. You would think then that at least every second sermon should be about money. Because Jesus is constantly talking about it. But what he's not doing is saying that money in itself is an evil. 
money becomes evil because it makes us selfish. It makes us forget the people around us. It makes us think we are independent of everyone. And instead of using it to bring people together, to look after everyone's needs, it ends up driving us apart and blinds us to what's going on. Well, if they had money like me, they wouldn't be in such trouble. Pastor Vinovskis was reminding me at one of our fellowship times, at one of our meetings earlier this week of, Oh God, the movie with George Burns, where somebody comes up, probably John Denver, and asks George Burns, asks God, why don't you do something about poverty in the world? To which God's response is, why don't you? And so Jesus is trying to break through our hard hearts and say, I want you together. I don't want these things that keep driving you apart, that become your God, but are in fact worthless. Let me be your Lord. Let me be your God. Let me who is willing to die on a cross, who bled on that cross, who rose from the dead, be the one that you trust more than anything in the world. Because here's what I do, God says in Christ, I take everyone and bring them to myself. I gather you together around a table and I feed you. It is why the Lord's Supper is so important because it is a reminder that when we are here sitting individually in our pews at least once during the service, we are forced to be together, to be one, to come together to that altar, repent for what we've done, and realize when we kneel there, Lazarus is with us. Just like Owen will be with Lazarus. Because in baptism, he has been drawn into Christ. He has been made one with him. He will never be alone. Moms and dads go away. Even sponsors sometimes become forgetful. Grandparents eventually find themselves moving on. But Owen will never be alone. Because he's not the rich dude. He's Lazarus. And he's being brought to the bosom of Abraham just like us. There are no dogs licking his forehead this morning. It was the very hand of God that washed his head and said, you are mine. You are mine forever. You will be in Abraham's bosom, but the whole family of God, the whole family, seven times 70 times an infinite number. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.